Welcome to the Experts Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. The following was recorded on Doctor's Day at the VA Hospital in West Palm Beach, Florida. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Physicians work an average of 60 hours per week, which is consistently more than most other professions. 76% of doctors lean on their religious beliefs to help them cope with stress. Very interestingly and concerning is that most doctors only have one to three close friends, and 4% of doctors identify no close friends. So with the estimated 700,000 doctors in the U.S., we can basically calculate that approximately 30,000 doctors really have no close friends. And that is actually very concerning. We face inordinate amounts of stress, and as physicians, we're supposed to deal with it and be strong, but we're far from perfect, and sometimes we break. I consider myself extremely fortunate because I have not suffered the loss of a personal friend or a doctor that I know lost to suicide. Many of my colleagues are not so lucky. It's a very unfortunate thing that happens every day. The message today should not be a somber one. It should be one of optimism and a call to pay attention to our own well-being. I've always believed that the airlines should have it all figured out. Think about the oxygen mask. You need to put your mask before you can help others. If you don't care for yourself, you will not be able to help others. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Abby Strauss, specialized in psychiatry. Dr. Strauss will have a conversation with us on the topic of keeping the healers healthy. Please welcome Dr. Abby Strauss. Thank you very much. One of the things that we have focused so much, both from a psychiatric point of view and with Palm Beach County Medical Society in the last couple of years, was the impact of stress on physicians our initial focus was the number of doctors who developed problems with addiction. We've interviewed a number of them, and it's very telling. It's a very satisfying sense to get the feeling that these people came forward. It was very hard for them. Some of them were arrested. Some of them had problems with the boards, but they got their lives back together, and I wanted to talk about how they did that. It's very encouraging. Statistics are a good place to start. It's estimated that roughly 7% of all physicians in the United States at various times have suicidal thoughts. The average for non-physicians is around 4%. So one has to wonder why there is such a difference. We lose approximately 400 physicians a year from suicide. And there was one in, so we are told, we are told that a, a doctor committed suicide in the area just a couple weeks ago. Very, very sad just very sad. But one of the things from a psychiatric point of view that we need to really look at is the makeup of suicidality and the makeup of the patient. It is sometimes very difficult for physicians to acknowledge that they are just people. And statistically, many of you who are listening also have psychiatric challenges from minor to major and we need to get over the notion of being afraid, or maybe it's just not part of the person's character to admit that they're having problems. A lot of the people who die from suicide are the obvious losses, but there's a large uncounted number, and I don't even know where to begin to count, because doctors are not always upfront about this sort of thing, is the number of people who, because of alcoholism, drug abuse, other problems sort of disappear and lose their ability to function in the way that they've trained for. So we have the actual death of the person and we have the actual diminishment or loss of their ability to function as a physician. Two separate entities and in combination, probably a much larger number. 
In the course of my own treating addicts, the people that we interviewed also said that the key issue is not to go through your careers alone. That the world in which we live, and I don't know enough about the inner politics of the VA system, but I can tell you outside of the VA, there's a constant battle. And the battle is constantly to find a way to get our work done, to deal with medicine, to not deal with bureaucracies, to not deal with prior authorizations and the like. And it's almost like we are beaten, beaten, beaten. And it's huge. It's almost like it's beginning to kill us little bit by little bit. There is a term that we all know. It's called the Holocaust. And there is another term that refers, and interestingly, we're going to refer again to Ukraine, that in the 1930s, there was an intentional famine by Stalin to kill people, to starve them of their ability, obviously, to live. Well, in so many ways, the systems that are now going on are starving us of the ability to live. And the term, and I'm not pronouncing it correctly because it's Ukraine, is holodomor, holodomor. And what it means by famine, the famine can be loss of energy. Hollow means extermination. Holocaust is extermination by fire. So the concepts are very interesting when it comes to the notion that we as a profession are under severe attack and that many of the things that we study very hard to do, that we expect to have in our lives, that we expect to be able to be acknowledged. We need to look at how we can not be deprived of the emotional energy that we need to survive as we go through and do our best, really do our best to help people live a better life. A lot of our decisions are very, shall we say, more quick than not. We don't have the luxury of a lawyer to sit and study a case for a long time. We usually have to make decisions very quickly, hence the stress level goes up. But the thing, again, over and over and over is not to be alone, to have somebody to talk to. And whenever we talk to physicians who are having emotional problems, we ask them, tell me about your social life. How's your marriage? A lot of the marriages aren't as good as they claim to be. Who do you talk to? How do you relax? Do you relax with a glass of beer? Do you relax by doing something with a friend? Tell me. And this becomes the lead-in to one of the biggest problems we have, and that's of shame. We estimate that there are so many physicians because they are embarrassed. They went to medical school. They're strong. They're used to making decisions that they can't concede or admit that they have a problem. And yet, statistically, I don't know how many people are online here. Let's just round it off and say, like I said at the beginning, 7% of all physicians suffer from a suicidal thought. A couple of you do. A couple of you do. And in terms of anxiety and and depressions, again, the statistics, they vary widely, depend upon how they're measured, of course. 20, 30, 40% of the population has that. If it's double for physicians, again, that means there's got to be a, a dozen or two of you who, if you look inside yourself, there's some sort of problem going on. I treat a number of physicians. Initially, they're terrified of what's going to happen if they're not perfect, if they are too emotional and get drawn to patients because they're too emotional, so they block it in themselves, or the ultimate thing is if they go and seek help, which is the right thing to do, that they are going to somehow have some sort of ramification, not a good ramification, from the Board of Medicine or some other regulatory issue. What I can promise you is that if you're in Florida and you have a problem and you are concerned about your ability to defend your treatment and your needs in front of the board, go to the Physicians Recovery Network, PRN.
They are excellent. And a lot of the times, all this is done without it going to the board. Don't be afraid of getting in trouble. I have personally treated people who have been in very serious trouble and their licenses were put on hold. But the board will look and say, are you trying to fix yourself? Let's see what's going on. Give me data. Do it over the course of time. Don't be a loner. Don't be so proud. And people have gotten their licenses back. When you listen to the podcast about these very brave doctors who went on a public podcast and talked about being arrested and using drugs and, oh, my God, the stories just don't stop. Some of them are practicing again. It depends upon the state. But the point is they fix themselves and they are carrying on. One of the doctors, interestingly, that we interviewed actually hires doctors in recovery. And that's awesome. The gentleman who did the hiring, they knew that these were well-trained people, educated people. They wanted to help. They got in trouble. So if he saw that you went and got fixed, he'd give you a job. But we have to reach out. And I'm going to say that over and over and over again. Don't do it alone. Don't treat yourself. If you're feeling depressed, don't start taking a Paxil. A lot of doctors have, shall we put it this way, they, they're, they're ashamed or their ego is such that they can't admit that they can't figure it out. And these are the people who get into trouble because you're just human. You're just like your patients. If I may interrupt for one second, we have approximately 100 people. So we're talking about probably seven folks are dealing with that type of struggle. If you could maybe also what the medical society is doing with the wellness program as well. So we set up a couple of years ago a confidential counseling program that if someone's having a problem, you call the Palm Beach County Medical Society, you ask for the physician's wellness group, and they will connect you to a psychologist or someone in the community who's qualified to give you help. And it's done completely quietly, don't have to report it. And it very often diffuses tension that otherwise could get very difficult. We have not had the results that we would like. And that is sadly because our hypothesis that people are ashamed or afraid. Do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be ashamed. It is far more sad when we have to talk about something after the fact. A couple other little pieces of this. Women tend to have a harder time with this than men, kind of backwards, because in society, women are much more open about their emotional needs. It's the men who are harder to get a hold of. But women in medicine face dual roles. They are a doctor and they are often a mother. And the amount of time and energy needed to tend to what's going on at home amplifies the stresses that are under. It's sad that it's not a more balanced thing in our society, but women tend to be much more involved in the falling apart emotionally than men. They bill that just passed nationally called Laura Bean Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Laura Bean was a doctor in New York City, committed suicide sometime in 2020. She was working in the ER and she was overwhelmed by the COVID crisis. Obviously, I could only go so far because I don't know the details, but the suggestion has been made that she was afraid that if she went to ask for help, somehow that would go to the regulatory people and she would lose her license. Well, instead, she lost her life. And very often, again, I'll say it probably too many times, most of the time, if you're in trouble, go to PRN and they have a good success rate of dealing with people with problems without it necessarily requiring board action. Everybody just wants to see you get better. One of the things that we need to just acknowledge is that, as in the Ukrainian term that I do not know how to properly pronounce, when we become exhausted, as was noted, we work roughly 60 hours a week. 
When we become exhausted, we don't have the ability to replenish. And the thing that seems to be so central to building a person's life again is having a hobby, having an enjoyment, having a relationship that gives us some satisfaction so that medicine is not the entirety and the center point of our entire lives. I know many people, good doctors, I would, I would trust them with my family. But I ask them, so what do you do for fun? Oh, I work seven days a week. No, that's not what I want to hear. I'm glad you have the clinical skills, but what do you do for some emotional satisfaction? The use of medicines in mental health has become, shall we say, we've become overly infatuated with it. The estimates are, is that about 50% of all cases of hypertension are actually from psychiatric problems. They don't need the antihypertensive meds. They need to be taught how to deal with their anxieties and the like. Some people clearly have hypertension and they need the standard medicines. But a very large percentage of the conditions that we treat in our patients and in ourselves are lifestyle issues. How many of you talk to your patients, got to eat better, got to exercise more, please don't eat that, please do this, please do that, try to get a good night's sleep. And because we don't want to give up a certain lifestyle, we pay the price by making ourselves sick. If you have the time, there is a tremendous amount of interesting literature showing about how our sleep cycles have changed since the Industrial Revolution. Sleep has become more of a necessity that we have to squeeze in. We have to do it instead of what nature intended it to be as a restorative event. We have to look at our own lifestyles. And again, if it sounds like I'm just being redundant, it's because it's so true. Giving a person a medication, there's a time and place for it. Absolutely. That's why I left social work to go into medicine because I needed to better understand the medicines. But nothing is as powerful as sitting and talking to somebody. And it takes time. Some people do not know how to talk. So if we have 100 people, roughly seven of you, according to the statistics, have at some time had some sort of suicidal thought. Probably 30 to 40 percent of you have had at some times significant problems with depressions and anxiety. Then there's the whole slew of other things that come in. A good chunk of you are going to have some bipolar disorder. And if your moods go up and down, you need to be in some sort of treatment so that your moods don't interfere with your ability to practice in a safe manner. We have marvelous treatments. The combination of the verbal therapies, which help make us be people and connect and find a spiritual grounding. I think you said that 76% of the people rely on some element of spirituality to deal with their stress. I think that's wonderful. That's absolutely great. And the appropriate use of medications. My take-home message is don't be alone. Don't be ashamed. You're just human like the rest of us. And let's keep you functioning. You have been blessed with the opportunity to be a physician. You have enormous skills. People thank you. Let's take care of you. Now, it was suggested I'd much rather have a conversation than a talk. And that's one of the reasons I didn't bring slides, because I could give you slides of all sorts of protocols and histories and algorithms, all very interesting stuff. We don't need to be academic. We just need to be ourselves. If I don't feel right, let's do something about it. Don't be embarrassed. Shall we go to just questions and conversations now? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was fantastic. 
Let me actually touch on one of the points that you mentioned in terms of the relaxation. I guess the message is that it should be something constructive, not destructive. Because yes. some of the relaxation techniques, such as using you know alcohol and other things, how do you usually counsel individuals that have this problem? One of the key elements is trying to get a sense of just how significant maladaptive relaxation techniques are. Very often, the best source of information is not the patient. It's talking to the wife, the friend, the child and saying, your husband comes home every day. What does he do? He has a drink. Does he have a second drink? Can you go out without drinking? What do you do together? That's the source of information. And that's one of the reasons that you should not try to do this by yourself. One of the fantastic elements of Alcoholics Anonymous is all the people that you're with who will look at you and say, oh no, 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 no. You're, you're giving us a bunch of stuff here. You have a problem. You have to look at the style of the relaxation and they vary differently. You need to find something in your heart and soul that gives you a sense of peace. And it sometimes takes time to do it. And a lot of times the process of going through medical school, through residency, building up a practice does not allow for the time to grow in those domains. And the people who don't grow very often stumble and get in serious trouble. If just by chance they have a psychiatric predisposition in them, it can be worsened and then it becomes not unfixable, but it can be messy at times. Another point I wanted to make is that generally for you to address a problem, the first step is to, to acknowledge that you have the problem. I think that we struggle with giving ourselves permission to acknowledge that we have the problem. I had a patient, a very bright man, incredible engineer. He was in a bad marriage. So he got himself a girlfriend and that didn't work out. And he started drinking because he couldn't deal with it. And one day he had one DUI, one DUI. And he woke up in jail and he said, this isn't working. This isn't working. And he had to go to AA and he stood up in front of everybody, takes a deep breath. And some of you, I'm sure, have had AA experiences. So statistically, there's got to be somebody in this group. Stood up and took a deep breath and said, oh, yes, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. Then hopefully the cluster of people around him, his sponsor, his family, and Al-Anon all worked with him to go through those processes. It's acknowledging it and not being ashamed. Be more ashamed for lying to yourself than being honest. And if people don't understand that why you're being honest, then this isn't the person who should be your mentor. This isn't the person who should be your equal. Say, thank you very much. See you. Goodbye. Because you need people who are going to help you grow. In rabbinic training, there are occasional discussions when the rabbis teach the students how to accept criticism and how to be told, you're wrong. And if you think I'm wrong in saying that you're wrong, prove it to me. Not always pleasant, but it's productive. And the end result of that is the truth. A phrase in Latin, and I cannot say it, and it says, the truth abhors delay. And if you don't do it, it rots. All of you are too good, have done too much to help the world, want to do things. We don't want an inner festering to rot to the point that you're not functioning. We want to keep you. We don't want to lose you. I've had many patients come to me and they'll sit down and say, so hello, what brings you here? And they'll say things like, I never thought I'd be here. So I'll ask you, why are you here? Your idea is somebody else's idea. Well, my wife said that if I don't be honest with myself, she may consider divorcing me. That was the impetus that started. Then you bring the wife in and then you build a relationship and things can get fixed. Believe me, it's not always medicine. It's a lot of 
meeting with counselors, whatever works for you. If it's a religious basis, speaking to clergy, whatever works for you. And it's a sense of family that you have to develop. There have been some questions about that you're not alone and you should not be alone. And it's important to have a good support group. Colleagues can be a great support group, but not in the sense of, of work, but rather more socially. One thing that's very hard for people to accept is that if you do go into therapy, because of your training, so on and so on, you may have to go to a couple therapists. Do you find one who's stronger than you and who's good enough? God bless the people who want to help. I can never say anything other than thank you. But too many people become counselors. They mean well. But you need somebody who really knows how to grab a hold of the steering wheel and is going to look at you and say, I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're a professor. I don't care you won the Nobel Prize. I'm telling you, you're giving me a bunch of nothing. Sorry if I hurt you, but let's talk about it. Let's build on it. You just don't need somebody who's going to feed you. You need somebody who's going to make you get a little hungry at times. And that's productive in the long run. Don't be embarrassed. I went to see one counselor. It didn't work. Go see another one. We have a question here. We are the worst patients when it comes to seeking medical care for ourselves. What will be the tipping point where we should seek mental health help immediately? Good question, and it is very true. It's when you reach a certain level of discomfort that the pain exceeds the ability to deny it. A lot of it is also because a lot of physicians, shall we put it this way, their egos are very big. They can't accept that they're flawed. They can't excel. I, I know how to fix it. I'm the world's best infectious disease guy. Look at what I did. Yes, you are. But that's not mental health. Until you are scared. That's commonly what we say in mental health. Until someone is scared of something, they're not really going to bite the proverbial bullets that they need to to get better. If you continue to live in a bubble, if you make enough money that you can take nice vacations and have social relationships, but if inside there is a discomfort, a spiritual discomfort, then accept it, swallow what you have to swallow, open up your heart and soul, build yourself for what you are. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing Sunday morning preaching when I do this. It's that spirituality because we think we know that when it comes to themselves, They may not know how to fix themselves. And who's going to lose in the long run? We should not be treating ourselves for medical things, and we should not be treating ourselves for mental health problems either. Can you actually speak a little bit about compassion fatigue and how it relates to our well-being? We have to learn not to be so sensitive. Horrible thing to say. Horrible thing to say. But we have to, at times, learn to be the clinician. I had a teacher who once said that if you feel that, you need to go cry. When you cry, do it with some of your colleagues who understand. You will burn yourself out, to use the phrase, if you don't somehow learn how to contain your desire to help people. It's a very funny mixture being a physician. You have to be the clergyman, you have to be the counselor, and you have to be the scientist. And sometimes the scientist has got to be the beginning and end of what you do. But being sympathetic is a part of human beings. In residency, there was a 27-year-old guy who had a cardiac condition and he died. One of the residents that this person had been assigned to began to cry. It was her first death as a physician. And I remember the name was Henry Pinsker, was our one of our wonderful attendings, said, take her out walk the streets of New York, buy her rice pudding, whatever she wants, cry, 
hug her as need be because she's learning to be a physician and she needs to learn how to do this. We do need to learn how to do this. And if you're too sensitive, then you need to go into therapy and try to find out why you are so sensitive so that you can combine the things. When Golda Meir became prime minister of Israel, apparently she went to her staff and said, I need three things. I need soldiers, I need teachers, and I need physicians. The concept is very powerful. It applies to us as well. So if you find yourself too vulnerable to the compassion, that may be an undercurrent of a depression in yourself, and you need to look at that. Or it may be a vulnerability because you saw your grandmother die, and as horrible as that was, whenever you see someone die, you're thinking of your grandmother. These things do occur. It's not simplistic. They do occur. I don't mind being upfront. When my mother died a couple of years ago, for a while, every time I heard about somebody losing their parents, it just got to me. So fortunately, I have a very good psychologist friend here, and I probably talked her ear off, <laughs> as they say, but she helped. And she made me express myself as a human being. And she would say, I don't care that you're the physician. I don't care. Tell me, what's the fear? What's the loss? Touch the inside of the soul. And that's what psychotherapy is. Psychotherapy isn't just telling me you're sad. You need to know that. If you do this and the first therapist doesn't work, go to a second one. And if the only thing they do is, oh, you're depressed. Here, take some Lexapro. Unless it's mandatory, I'd say, thank you very much. I'm going across the hall. Because we have become infatuated in a bad way with medications. Time and place for them. Thank God we have them. But our spirits and our souls are bigger than just a pill. It's the balance. There's so much potential here. It really is. We can we can fix ourselves, guys. We don't need such a high suicide rate. We really don't. Absolutely. It boils down to, to having a support system and recognizing the problem and, and being willing to admit it. I know that one of the things you mentioned, things about getting, you know, billing and compensation, et cetera, which we don't necessarily have to deal with on authorizations here. But of course, we deal with all the other pressures that have to do with productivity and having less time with the patient and that we establish meaningful connections and relationships with the patients in an era where we're paying so much attention to the documentation that has to go in the medical record and reminders and completion of multiple different templates and things like that. That's one of the frustrations that we see here, particularly when more things are added. It's almost as if our allegiance has become to the person who is paying us rather than to the patient. That's really sad. The state of Florida historically ranks 48th, 49th in the United States in providing mental health services. There is not enough money, and it's not my job to get political here, but one has to be aware of the attitude of the community towards mental health. We don't have enough mental health beds in, in Palm Beach County. These people are spending two days, three days in the emergency rooms. And so it's important that you look inside yourself, find your political niche, whatever it is, and speak up and make it better, make it more accessible. I trained, as we all do probably, at one stage or another in a VA hospital. But for some reason, I seem to recall that we always had beds. And I think that's because back then, at least, I don't, again, don't know how it is now, that the, the government felt committed to help the veterans. And there was never an argument, unless it was something completely unreasonable, about the type of services that we were going to give. We helped them. Now we have become beholden to the people who look at this as for-profit entrepreneurship and 
getting prior authorizations just to keep people in the hospital. I had a patient a couple years ago and she had been raped when she was seven years old and she would become psychotic and the poor woman, lots of other things. She just didn't do well. And when she was hospitalized under her insurance, it was not a good insurance. They spent more time trying to get prior authorization to keep them for another week than getting the clinical history. This is the world we live in. And so become an advocate. Absolutely. Not for just yourself, but for everybody. Well said. I think that sometimes we're kind of becoming bystanders instead of trying to, to change things by participating actively. Dr. Strauss is being gracious enough to share all his thoughts with us for Doctor's Day. I would like to just close by one thing, because I think it's a sign of the times when we tend to think that we don't touch patients. I don't mind telling the story because I think it's frightening, but chilling. This past year, I had cancer. Okay. By the grace of God, I'm okay. In the hospital, a group of medical students came by and I asked them, if you want to, take your stethoscopes, listen to both sides of the tumor, the bowel sounds. And they said, we don't have to. We have the CT scan. The surgeon came by and he said, this is going to hurt. And he took his hands and he pushed and pushed and pushed. And I'm terrified that what the students did not do is meaning that they are removing themselves from us as people and touching. And I think psychiatry is doing that as well, that you have these symptoms, you need that pill. It doesn't work that way. And I hope that anyone who's listening, if you feel inside of yourself that you need to be touched, find a doctor who will reach out and spend the time with you and palpate your emotions, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. You know, really. Just do it. I mean, that's a great point. I recently was reading an editorial on Doximity, actually, where there was someone trying to make the point that the physical exam is outdated and should not be performed anymore. And I was sufficiently appalled to write back because Good. you have to write back. And there was a, quite a bit of pushback. I think that we are leaning way too much on technology. And when you actually even see that in psychiatry, that's, that's very scary prescribing a pill as opposed to, to really exploring things deeper. So I, I, I think that experiences like that actually give a better doctorate. I want to thank you on behalf of our entire medical center and a great, you know, food for thought. This is mostly stuff to think about, to know that there's help out there, but you need to make sure that you don't feel that you're invincible and that you can handle it yourself. You just need to reach out for help. Again, thank you so very much and happy Doctor's Day to everyone.